Warrior Kitties. Glad to have you back. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is Bible Study BS. Greetings and hallucinations to all of you. And welcome or welcome back for episode 10 of Bible Study BS. Once again, I am your study buddy, buddy. And today we'll be kicking off chapters. Well, well, actually, there aren't any chapters today. No, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go a different route today. I'm going to go the route of answering a question posed to me a few months ago by my friend Jared. Now I realize that this is usually the part in the intro where I go off on an alliterative rant about what I want to accomplish in this episode, so why mess with the formula? Today I'll be talking to and taking on the tried and true topic of what tends to trigger my temperamental tick towards temples and tabernacles by them telling and tricking tentative trainees that the towering, tricky, and treacherous two-faced tumulus is actually a truthful and trustworthy thoroughfare to totalitarianism, even though he is, in truth, a tyrannical twat, and that they believe he turned the theoretical terra firma into a transcendental thicket of truth and testament. And if that torturous and twisted tirade is too much to transform my topsy-turvy tongue-lashing into a truthful timbre, then I will just say that I'm actually going to be talking about why religion pisses me off so much. We have a great deal to get to in this episode, so let's not dilly nor dally. Now, if you've been a loyal listener to this podcast, and I hope that you have, you have no doubt listened to episode number one, where I give my background and a little insight into who I was, who I became, and who I am now. I mentioned some of my influences, the Puzzle and a Thunderstorm guys, Seth Andrews, Thomas Smith, the Thank God I'm Atheist podcast, and Cognitive Dissonance, and on and on. I told you of how I came to my current status and what motivated me to become the Huffy Heathen that I am, so we really have no need to go into that. If you need to be informed in that aspect, please start on episode one. No, today I'm going to go into a topic that one of my best friends posed to me while we were on a beach in Florida back in March. So my wife and I and three very good friends, Jeremy, Krista and Annie took a trip down to Madeira Beach on Treasure Island in Florida this past spring. We were having a wonderful time where an unfortunate family emergency had my wife heading to her childhood home. I wound up staying with our friends in Florida due to the fact that everything was in our name and we didn't want them to have to cancel their vacation as well. At any rate, one late afternoon as the four of us were lounging on the beach, we got into some ethical and spiritual topics. I came to the conclusion of a conversation and said, now I'm paraphrasing here, I said, Look, don't hurt anyone. Live and let live. Be a good person, and I don't care what you worship or what God you prescribe to. It was then that Jeremy, who is one of my dearest and oldest friends, and a guy that can keep a conversation going no matter what, it was then that Jeremy said to me, what do you mean you don't care? Didn't you just start a podcast rallying against all religions? Of course you care. And he was right. That little tidbit has been rolling around in my noggin since March. I figured that episode 10 should be the place to firmly address it. So, Jeremy, if you're listening, this episode is dedicated to and inspired by you and your relentless inquisitions. I love you, buddy. So what is it about religion that pisses me off? It's a big topic, isn't it? Let's make something clear right out of the gate. I am not a biblical scholar, and these are just my opinions on these topics. That is a limited list at that, because otherwise we would be here till the end of time discussing my hatred of gods and religion. So there's that. Now, let me also say that it is all religion that irritates me, not just Christianity or quote-unquote organized religion. A lot of people will go that route. No, religion is fine. It's just the organized aspect of it. The Joel Olsteins of the Kenneth Copeland, the millionaires, those that abuse their seat of power and influence over the masses, those are the bad guys. Those are the ones that really get me going. And don't get me wrong, I truly can't stand those liars and hypocrites either, and I would happily stand by as they all had their tonsils removed rectally while the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir stood around belting out a Lady Gaga slash George Michaels medley 
But those assholes are in no way mutually exclusive in the terrorizing religious slash Christian, Christian oppressiveness of this nation. Separating televangelists or prosperity gospel scumbags from those spouting hate speech from any other type of pulpit is akin to telling people that you hate child molesters, but it's okay if some douchebag office chad bro slaps your friend Sally on the ass at the company picnic. Guess what? They're both sex offenders and need to be treated as such. Granted, one of them is hopefully going to be punished more severely than the other, but essentially they are one in the same. Admittedly, the hope that they would both be punished is subjective at best, because remember, folks, this is America, and our justice system is a joke nine times out of ten, but that's a topic for another day. Now on to Jeremy's point, and what has kind of been eating away at me for the last few months. Why do I feel the need to rally against this aggravation that is religion? I truly feel the main reason I get so irked by the church has a great deal to do with how they have perceived themselves for centuries and what their final form comes out as. Religion has been around as long as man has. Hell, it was man that created all religions in the first place. That's why they all have so much in common. But for the sake of my sanity and for the sake of some type of brevity, I'm just going to hit on the big three for this essay, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. I'll mention the others, but we'll mostly be referencing these three and really biting into Christianity simply due to familiarity. Had I been raised Jewish or Muslim, I would be going that route. But as it stands, the B-I-B-L-E, well, that's the book for me, even though the Torah or the Quran are pretty much the same. But non-existent God help you if you ever try telling that to a real Bible-thumping Jesus freak, which I do. That's because I'm an asshole and I take massive amounts of enjoyment in irritating the uber-racists that declare themselves as a conduit to the Almighty. Come to think of it, I probably won't be touching much on the Quran or the Torah very much if at all. So let's just stick with the Bible. I think it interesting that so many of the participants of these ancient religions believe that they are the be-all, end-all, and that they have all the answers when it comes to what's right and what's wrong with today's modern world and society's ills. Here's a hint. They don't. Many Christians will tell you outright that they are in no way perfect. Well, I have to agree with them on that aspect. Then they say they never claim to be. Well, that's bullshit because they will be hard-pressed not to point out all of the shortcomings of those around them and make it seem that they are better than all those who don't worship the God that they prescribe to. And for centuries, victims of religions, all religions, have bled and died for the beliefs of overzealous devotees. All you need is one person, one overzealous disciple who thinks their shit don't stink, to crank up the crowd. And if you don't believe me, look to January 6, 2021. Do you think all of those attendees showed up there with the intent of attempting to take over the Capitol building and execute the vice president and the speaker of the house? No, I guarantee that the majority of those people attending that rally were only there to rally. It wasn't until the shit got stirred up by extremists and the outgoing administration that everything started going down and mob rule mentality took over. Granted, this really does drive my point home, because if you think that 99.9999% of all those attendees weren't Christians and Jeebus fanatics, then I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. And the same can be said for religious atrocities throughout the centuries. The church always considers their adherents to be sheep, led by one shepherd. Well, when the shepherd says jump, those sheep will head to the edge of the nearest cliff without hesitation and take whatever and whoever is in their way with them. Religion poisons people's minds and forces them to attempt horrible acts. Don't forget that the belt buckles of the Nazis said God mit uns, which means God with us. For the most part, I find the majority of religious people harmless, but just like today's modern police force, all it takes is one bad apple. 
And right there is another issue that I have. Most religious attendees are harmless good people for the most part. However, I have close friends whose older parents are just as brainwashed by the religious right and the hate spouted from Fox News-like sources. But due to age and or geographic restrictions, they are unable to contribute to the fanaticism that they fully and truly ascribe to in their hearts. The poison of theology runs so deep in this country that the thought of us ever getting out from underneath the yoke of it is a pipe dream at best. Look, I don't like using the term oppression when it comes to how the non-religious are treated in this nation. Mostly it's because Christians like to save that word for the holiday season, but I really see no other word that can be effectively used. The non-religious or otherly religious are regularly harassed and accused of atrocities that are never committed, like death panels or the murdering of children for adrenochrome, the taking away of rights of the religious. And all the while, all we're doing is living our lives in a different way, a way that you may not agree with, but we're just doing it without attempting to appease a non-existent sky death. When we live our lives, we are simply doing it to the benefit of ourselves and those we love. We are not here to be better in order to score brownie points. Because if you're only being a good person in order to gain favor with your invisible best friend, guess what? You're a shitty person. Some zealots believe that due to their godly devotion, the world they live in and love solely exists to rotate around them and their behalf and their beliefs. On occasion, you really have to stand in awe of the aura of superiority exuded by the uber-neoconservative sectarians that feel they have more rights than you do because God and the Jeebus say so. Let's move on to another issue that really puts the sand in my lube. The way the religious right has moved to take over the political horizon of this country. Now, I understand that this is way too big of a topic to take on in my little insignificant podcast, so I'm really just going to skim the surface due to time and mostly my ignorance. But the way our nation is being manipulated by these hypocritical and sanctimonious advocates is nauseating at best and violently unconstitutional at worst. In my opinion, it all comes down to the Johnson Amendment. And if you're unfamiliar with that, I'll go over it briefly. The Johnson Amendment is an addition adopted in 1954 to the Internal Revenue Code, 501c3, as a condition for maintaining exemption from income taxes and other taxes, charitable organizations, including churches and affiliated groups, are forbidden from participating or intervening in any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. The amendment is named after then-Senator, later President, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who introduced the amendment out of concern about the Facts Forum and the Committee for Constitutional Government. Both were tax-exempt organizations that had imitated the tactics of Senator Joseph R. McCarthy in campaigning against politicians like Johnson who were more liberal in their political orientations. So the base description of the Johnson Amendment states that if you are a nonprofit, or for the sake of my issue, a church, then you are allowed no say in government. But the problem comes when so many of our political representatives allow their religion to interfere with their oath of office. In this instance, I really don't give a shit what you worship as long as you're able to do your job. Keep yourself dedicated to the Constitution and not act on how it affects your holy BFF. I can only go after the Christians of this country in this instance, since Christianity is the leading religion in this nation and has the highest number of members in our government. And it also runs the gambit of our Supreme Court. If you're unable to keep your God out of the courts, then in my humble opinion, you do not belong in the courts. Plain and simple. However, not only do you have the bureaucratic officials dipping their religious dick into the governmental pudding, but there is also an encroachment of pastors hate-fucking the lies they love so much into the realm of government and pretending like they have the consent of the constituents of the society. 
And not only are both breeds of these unholy shit funnels perpetuating their brand of hate and loathsomeness into the vernacular that is slowly eroding the ethos of this society by way of their political and legislative lies and falsehoods, they also take it upon themselves to deceive their viewership into following the idiotic lies that they believe. Like, for instance, not getting vaccinated during a goddamn pandemic so they can continue to spread their disease like it's right-wing propaganda. I'm looking at you, Dave Dobenmeyer, Greg Locke, Rick Wiles, who happened to get COVID. These charlatans have convinced their congregation and by way of television and the internet, thousands of others not only to place themselves at risk for illness, but also to put those around them in danger as well. I'd be curious to see how many of these gangly mouth waffles have actually gotten vaccinated and not told the flock. Personally, I think there should be some type of legal recourse taken upon anyone, be it pastor or senator, such as Laura Ingram, or congressperson like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in the last few months has compared vaccination and vaccination paperwork to the Holocaust and the German brown shirts, both topics I'm relatively sure she has no clue are connected. I believe there should be some type of punishment or sanction for these apocalyptic twat mongers since they are actively killing their constituents. Now, I'm not going to dig into anti-vaxxers and their brand of fuckery here and now, but just let it be known that there are a lot of horseshit human beings that deserve very bad things to happen to them. Next issue, doomsday apocalypticos and all of those idiots that believe the end is nigh. Look, the end of the world has been predicted since the beginning of the world. Matthew 24 is basically dedicated to the end times. The prophets Daniel and Habakkuk predicted the second coming, and so does Second Timothy, Isaiah, First John, and the book of Revelation. The end times doctrine has been spoken of and proven false so many times that when the declaration of a new one comes up in modern day, it is such a joke to the secular community that we have made fucking punch cards for it. Survive 10 end of the world encounters and get the next one for free. So why does this axiom rile me up so much in this modern era? It's because it is so easily accessible nowadays through the internet that any doomsday prepper and end of the world wackadoo goes absolutely nuts trying to get ready to meet the almighty and they forget that there's actually a real proven reality here on planet earth that they still need to get through. These people are so looking forward to the end of time that some of them forget to live the life that their imaginary friend gave them in the first place. Another reason I hate this ominous naysaying is all of those that profit from it and that's profit with an F in this instance. People like Jim Baker, or Jim Backer, however you want to pronounce it. He's worth $500,000. Hal Lindsey, $4 million. John Hagee, $5 million. Rick Warren, $25 million. Joel Olstein, $100 million. Pat Robertson, $100 million. And Kenneth Copeland is worth $300 fucking million. You think that all of the people on this list, by the way, this is a short list, do you think they've gotten all this money by promising their congregation benefits on this physical plane? No, 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 no. They have given them such hope and fed them so many lies that the promise of an extended warranty on an existential plane looks better to them than making this existence better. There is an extensive list of these whack jobs that goes back centuries. Don't believe me? Let's start back in 66 CE with Simon Bagara and the Jewish Essence sect. They were a sect that believed the end times battle would happen between 66 CE and 70 CE. Guess what? Didn't happen. Pope Sylvester believed that it was going to happen. I'm sorry, Pope Sylvester II believed it was going to happen in 1000 uh, CE. You've got Joachim of Foray, Pope Innocent III, the Yakamites, various Europeans, Jean de la Roche, Arnaud de Villanova. There are various London astrologers back in 1524 that believed 
that the end of the world was going to happen on February 1st. I guess they forgot to carry the one because 100 years later in 1624 on February 1st, they believed it was going to happen again. Christopher Columbus was a big believer in the end of the world back in, he thought it was going to happen in 1656, but he wasn't 100% sure. And I guess he forgot to carry the two because he predicted it in 1658 as well. Cotton Mather was a Puritan minister that predicted the end of the world in 1697. And after he failed in that prediction, he revised the date two more times. Emmanuel Swedenborg was a former Lutheran that claimed the last judgment occurred in the spiritual world in 1757. Let's move into the 20th century. 1901, the Catholic Apostolic Church. 1910, Camille Flammarion. 1892 to 1911, Charles Piazza Smith. He was a pyramidologist that concluded from his research the dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Giza predicted the second coming and that it would occur somewhere between 1892 and 1911. Margaret Rowan, she was a uh, Seventh-day Adventist. Yep. She believed that the angel Gabriel appeared to her and told her that the world would end February 13, 1925, that the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have predicted the end of the world, I don't know how many times. Charles Manson predicted the end of the world in 1969, that Helter Skelter was the appropriate reaction to it. Let's get a little closer to our time. Ooh, Harold Camping. There he is. Everybody's favorite, Harold Camping. He predicted the end of the world September 6, 1994. That didn't happen. So he said September 29th, 1994. That didn't happen. So he predicted October 2nd, 1994. That didn't happen. So he predicted March 31st, 1995. It didn't happen. But in March 26, 1997, Marshall Applewhite, the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult, claimed that a spacecraft was trailing the Hale-Bopp comet and argued that suicide was the only way to evacuate this Earth so the cult members' souls could board the supposed craft and be taken to another level of existence above human. Applewhite and 38 of his followers committed mass suicide. We've got Pat Robertson. Yeah, in his uh, 1990 book, The New Millennium, Pat Robertson suggested that uh, the world was going to end April 29th, 2007. Oh, one more time. Harold Camping, May 21st, 2011. And then October 21st, 2011. Then he had the good taste to finally die in 2014. But this goes on and on. This is a very extensive list. I realized that that went on for, for a long time, but let's be honest, that barely scratched the surface. My whole point with all of that is that these hucksters have their congregations so buffaloed that throughout all of human history, people have been lied to and scammed by these charlatans. And we, as a society, keep coming back for more. Look, there have been times in my life where I've been promised one thing or another for various reasons or another. And the person promising it doesn't come through. When that is done enough times, if I keep holding on to those promises or guarantees, eventually I look like a fool. The road to hell may be paved with good intentions, but so many of these prophets start off with bad intentions that they don't even realize the path they create for those that take them at face value. All they do is create hell on earth. And that is exactly where this infatuation of death and false afterlife will lead its acolytes. But buddy, I hear you say, if that's the way they want to live, why does it make any difference to you? And you're right. It doesn't matter to me what you want to make believe in until you start making things difficult for other people. And that includes your offspring. To utilize and paraphrase one of my favorite quotes on this topic, religion is like a penis. It's fine if you have one, and it's fine if you want to be proud of it. But please stop whipping it out in public and stop trying to shove it down our children's throats. 
Forced religion indoctrination, no matter what the creed, is akin to child abuse. And anyone that was raised in any religious household and came out on the other side can verify that. <sighs> well, speaking of penises, on to my next issue, the Catholic Church. However, I think we need a break, maybe a palate cleanser. So let's take a minute to hear from our sponsor, Anchor. How would you like to create your own podcast? Well, do I have good news for you. You can do just that by using Anchor. And the even better news is Anchor is free. They even have creation tools that let you produce and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, now they've even added a feature where you can add any song from Spotify directly into your episode. So your creative endeavors are endless. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere else you may listen to podcasts. And you can also make money off of your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a good podcast in one convenient place. So download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. And now, back to the show. Well, that was a needed little break. So let's keep the hate flowing. Ah, oh, the Catholics. Now, there is no way possible that I can dive into all of the atrocities that have been committed by all religions over the centuries and millennia, let alone the Holy Catholic Church. So let's take a look at my top five, shall we? Number one, and the top of any list for those that disapprove of the, this calamity called the Catholic Compliance, is the long list of abuse committed by the Catholic priests and their colleagues. In the words of Helen Lovejoy, the children, won't somebody please think of the children? Trust me, the Catholic Church has thought about the children enough for all of us. Not only was the previous Pope, Joseph Ratzinger, a member of the Hitler Youth once upon a lifetime ago, but he is also key in the Church's cover-up and protection of the army of pastoral pedophiles and priestly perverts. He is one of the many men responsible for the covering up of years upon years of child abuse, rape, forcing priests and children to never speak about any dirty deeds or divine deflowering under the threat of excommunication. That's how much power these religious fuck nozzles hold over their sectarian servants, that they can tell them if they dare to inform any type of authority about how Father McTicklepants like to play hide the sacrament in the rectory, you'll be kicked out of the club. And if you don't think that this type of influence and clout held by one organization over its constituents is dangerous at best and deadly at worst, then you really need to rethink how you look at the world. These victims, often paid out for their silence, were usually thought of as inconsequential in their youth and unreliable as adults. Their unreliability was often the result of a lifetime of mental illness or substance abuse. But the real source of the unreliability came from the abuse and violation at the hands of those committed to helping them. That mental illness and substance abuse was frequently a direct result of the assault on the innocence of these church casualties. So what happens to these scumbag apostolic asshats? Were they kicked out, penalized, arrested, killed by honey badgers? No. They were usually just shuffled through the system of the Catholic predatory playground. The Pope and or the local diocese would simply move the accused priest to parishes that didn't know anything about them, creating a whole new fertile breeding ground for the pedophile yet again. Joseph Ratzinger, once Pope John Paul II's right hand, had incredible knowledge of the goings-on between the priests and their young flock. Over $2 billion has been spent by the church in order to settle abuse scandals and silence the abused. 
Both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict are guilty of letting these scandals through. And while Benedict did defrock 384 offending priests, he also refrocked several previously offending priests. Their crimes clearly absolved, or at least forgotten about long enough that they could join the fray once again. However, these malicious monks and violent vicars were not the only guilty participants in the malevolent magical mystery tour sponsored by the Catholic Church. Let's move on. I give you the Magdalene Laundries. What are the Magdalene Laundries, I hear you asking? Well, the Magdalene Laundries, or the Magdalene Asylums, were a punishment for women and girls in Ireland starting in the 1800s. The Magdalene Laundries were institutions primarily run by the Roman Catholic Church, operated from the 18th to the late 20th centuries. They were run ostensibly to house, quote-unquote, fallen women, an estimated 30,000 of whom were confined in these institutions in Ireland. In 1993, the unmarked graves of 155 women were uncovered in the convent grounds of one of these laundries. This led to media revelations about the operations of the secretive institution. A formal state apology was issued in 2013, and a 50 million pound compensation scheme for survivors was set up by the Irish government. However, the religious order which operated these laundries has summarily rejected activist demands that they financially contribute to this program. In the late 18th century, the term fallen women primarily referred to prostitutes, but by the end of the 19th century, Magdalene laundries were filled with many different kinds of women, including girls, who were not prostitutes at all. Maybe they were simply seductive women, or very attractive or flirtatious women who had yet to even engage in sexual activity. According to Francis Finnegan, author of Do Penance or Perish, A Study of Magdalene Asylums in Ireland, she said missionaries were required to approach prostitutes and distribute religious tracts designed to be read in sober moments and divert women from their vicious lives. Furthermore, the consignment even of genuine prostitutes to these laundries seldom reduced the number on the streets any more than did an individual prostitute's death. Because according to Finnegan, so long as poverty continued, the demand for public women remained. Such losses were easily replaced. Although they are thought of primarily to be Catholic institutions, this is not 100% accurate. The first Magdalene Laundry opened in 1767 on Leeson Street and was open to Protestant women only. Catholics, feeling left out of the club, opened their own asylum, and both religions believed in the power of themselves to rehabilitate these fallen women, or women who didn't conform to the prescribed Irish female identity. In other words, an independent woman, a strong woman, a rebellious woman. The church's idea of a woman's identity was a woman who would wait to have sex until marriage, she would stay home and be a mother and a faithful wife, and any deviation from this identity was seen as wrong. Magdalene laundries are named after Mary Magdalene, who began following Jesus after a life that was considered a little less than ideal. In a Magdalene laundry, women would be put to work washing and cleaning clothes and would participate in grueling prayer to atone for their sins, even if those sins weren't their fault. A girl that was considered too pretty or too flirtatious, a girl or woman that had been raped or sexually assaulted was quickly and quietly shuffled off to one of these laundries, especially at the standing or integrity of the man responsible for the attack or just the man responsible for her had the possibility of being besmirched. The idea was that through this hard work, these women would be granted absolution and return to society safely without endangering themselves or others. However, as the centuries went on, what began as short stints in these asylums got longer and longer, and some women spent the remaining of their lives in these horrific hostels in a basic form of indentured servitude. 
When these asylums first opened, many women entered them voluntarily, seeking shelter or refuge, possibly hoping to learn a skill that they could apply when they left. However, it became increasingly difficult to leave these laundries, and rather than providing an education and shelter, these women got punishment and prayer. They were not paid for their work, which made leaving on one's own terms almost impossible. Incredibly, these laundries continued to operate in various stages of utilitarian bleakness at best and cruelty and death at worst until 1996. It's been estimated that over 30,000 women passed through these asylums, some staying a month, some remaining for a lifetime. Even that seems to be a conservative figure when you consider that the time period in question spans over two centuries. One former inmate, Maria Gambold, told the BBC that, quote, one day I broke a cup. And the nun said, I'll teach you to be careful. She got a thick string and tied it around my neck for three days and three nights. I had to eat off the floor every morning. Then I had to get on my knees and I had to say, I beg almighty God's pardon, our lady's pardon, my companion's pardon for the bad example I have shown. Another survivor, Kathleen Legg, said, quote, every morning you would wake to the sound of a bell. You operated like a robot and you did not dare question a nun. We bathed once a week, and I remember the lice from our hair used to float to the top of the water, so if you were the last one to get washed, it was horrific, end quote. Because so many women and girls were destitute or pregnant by the time they arrived in these laundries, many babies ended up being born in convent hospitals, where they were quickly spirited away by the nuns, lest they be contaminated by these unclean or fallen mothers. According to reports, up to 2,000 children were illegally exported from the Magdalene laundries in Ireland to adoptive parents in the United States, mostly to wealthy families. The scandal has come full circle as many of these adult children have begun demanding justice for their birth mothers and requesting official state apologies because God and the Jebus knows they'll never get one from the church. In Dublin in 1993, the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity the owners and operators of a laundry in High Park in Drumcondora in Dublin had lost money in shares dealing on the stock exchange. So to cover their losses, they sold part of the land in their convent to a property developer. This led to the discovery of 133 unmarked graves. Inside were the remains of hundreds of penitents who had once been inmates at High Park, the largest laundry in Ireland. The final body count? 155. All of the corpses were cremated and reinterned in a different cemetery, but most of the deaths had not even been officially logged or certified, so it was not possible to notify relatives or provide closure of any kind. The general consensus, though, was that the bodies represented women or girls who had been neglected to death, mistreated to death, or maybe a little of each. Since 2001, the Irish government has acknowledged that women in the Magdalene laundries were victims of abuse. However, that same government has resisted calls for investigation and proposals for compensation. It maintains the laundries were privately run and abuses at the laundries are outside the government's jurisdiction. In contrast to these claims, evidence exists that Irish courts routinely sent women convicted of petty crimes to the Magdalene laundries. The government awarded lucrative contracts to these laundries without any insistence on protection and fair treatment of their workers. And Irish state employees helped keep laundry facilities stocked with workers by bringing women to work there and returning escaped workers. If you'd really like to dive down a fun rabbit hole, look up the connection to the Magdalene Laundries and Parker Brother Board Game Company. Amazing the things you can learn online. I have no doubt that the fact these facilities were run by the church greatly increases the government's desire to keep punishment and reparations off the table so as not to implicate Holy Mother Church in any illegal or immoral activities. 
Why don't we move on to something a little more present and topical, shall we? How about the Canadian residential schools? Now, if you've been hiding under a rock as of late, these are the little oases of paradise that dotted the great white north, and they have come under a bit of scrutiny as of late. Residential schools were government-sponsored religious schools that were established to assimilate Indigenous children into the Euro-Canadian culture. These residential schools were created by Christian churches and the Canadian government as an attempt to both educate and convert Indigenous youth and to assimilate them into Canadian society. So, how did they try to accomplish this? How did these church and government officials attempt to halt the heathenistic behaviors of these kids? How about by condemning children for speaking their native tongue? punishing them for wanting to keep their people's traditions going, or by beating the pagan religion out of them. Many students suffered abuse at these residential schools. Impatience and correction often led to excessive punishment, including physical abuse. In some cases, children were heavily beaten, chained, or confined. Some of the staff were actually sexual predators, and many students were sexually abused. When allegations of this abuse were brought forward by students, parents, or staff, the response by the government and the church officials was, at best, inadequate. Police were seldom contacted, and even if government or church officials decided that the complaint had merit, the response was often to simply fire the perpetrator. At other times, they allowed the abuser to keep teaching or just moved them to another school. The last residential school closed in 1996. Since then, former students have demanded recognition and restitution, resulting in the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement of 2007, and a formal public apology by Prime Minister Stephen Harper in 2008. In total, an estimated 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Metis children attended residential schools. According to the Truth Reconciliation Commission, at least 3,200 Indigenous children died in the overcrowded residential schools. Of course, due to poor record-keeping by the churches and federal government, it is unlikely that we will ever know the total loss of life at residential schools. However, according to TRC Chair Justice Murray Sinclair, the number may be more than 6,000. So. You may ask yourself, how does one do damage control on something like this? Does one admit to the wrongdoings of the government and the church? Does one make an attempt at compensation? Does one try to make amends with the indigenous peoples that were terrorized by the church and the government? No, one relies on a Catholic apologist to make horrific statements. An essay by Declan Leary in the American Conservative in July 2021 does just that arguing that the suffering endured in the residential schools by so many children was justified. Not politically, or historically, or culturally, but religiously justified by baptisms, confirmations, and catechisms carried out by the school's missionary administrators. I'm not making up any of this. In his essay, he says, whatever sacrifices were exacted in service of baptizing young Indians at residential schools were worth it. His essay concludes, sacrifices being a tame euphemism for forcibly separating generations of children from their parents, their lives, and their history. Quote, the suffocation of a noble pagan culture, apparently that's worth it. Quote, an increase in the disease and bodily death through the government negligence, I guess that's worth it. Quote, even the sundering of natural families, you guessed it, it's worth it. This piece of Fuck's reasoning is a shining issue in the flawed world of a new kind of macho American Catholicism and government. Look, like I said in the beginning of this tirade, there is no way I will ever be able to hit all the points of why religion pisses me off, but especially there is no way to fully encompass how much I despise the Catholic Church. Look, I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy. 
And to answer your question, no. And once I left the Catholic aspect of religion, I went right into another sect. Not necessarily a better one, but definitely a different one. And they were just as batshit crazy as the Catholics, maybe a bit less rapey. Just a bit. All right, let's move on to another great topic. How about the knowledge and the silence of the Catholic Church during World War II and the Holocaust? It would seem that Pope Pius XII had full knowledge of the goings-on in all these little nooks and crannies of the Third Reich. German researchers found that Popey Pie, who never directly criticized the Nazis and their slaughtering of the Jews, knew from his own sources about Hitler's death campaign early on. But he decided to keep this little bit of info from the United States after one of his aides argued that Jews and Ukrainians, which were his main sources, could not be trusted because they lied and exaggerated. The German researchers also discovered that the Vatican hid these and other sensitive documents, more than likely to protect Pope Pius's image, while the church is still reeling from their cover-up of clerical sexual abuse. Pope Pius XII, who headed the Catholic Church from 1939 to 1958 and is now a candidate for canonization, was was the most controversial pontiff of the 20th century. His failure to denounce the Holocaust publicly earned him the title of Hitler's Pope, and critics have for decades asked what his wartime archives would look like if they were open for scrutiny. What a peach. Well, before I hit into my last bit of love for the Catholic Church, let's hear one more time from our sponsor, Anchor. How would you like to create your own podcast? Well, do I have good news for you. You can do just that by using Anchor. And the even better news is Anchor is free. They even have creation tools that let you produce and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, now they've even added a feature where you can add any song from Spotify directly into your episode. So your creative endeavors are endless. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere else you may listen to podcasts. And you can also make money off of your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a good podcast in one convenient place. So download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. And now, back to the show. And we're back. I'm going to hit one more Catholic note before I start to wrap things up. And this is one of the most egregious things in all of Catholicism. And that thing goes by the name of Agnes Gunja Boyajou, otherwise better known as Mother Teresa. And no, I'm not going to go on a deep dive into her early life and stroll into her being a member of her cult. If you want that, go watch the movie Hell's Angel or read The Missionary Position by Christopher Hitchens. It's a great read. Well, I mean, anything by Hitchens is a great read, but especially that. No, what I'm going to go into is how much of a piece of shit Mother Teresa was and how she should have been charged with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other issues instead of being praised and canonized. Now, I realize that some of you will come to her defense, whether you are Catholic or not, religious or not. You will say, hang on now, buddy. How can you go after this sweet little old lady that did nothing more but help the poor and the sick? And to that I say, buckle up, bitches. Now, I have uh, to admit a few things about the woman known as Mother Teresa she was able to accomplish good things in her life. Kind of. As terrible as she was. She did help the poor. Kind of. She created charities. Kind of. And influenced an army of people to make good decisions in their lives. Kind of. But hey, even Hitler claimed to be a good Catholic. Quote, I am now 
as before, a Catholic and will always remain so, end quote, Adolf Hitler to General Gerhard Engel in 1941. Remember, Mythbusters prove that you can indeed polish a turd. Of course, in the public eye, Mother Teresa accomplished a great many things, but it was what she accomplished whilst out of the public eye that really rumples my still skin. Like what, you may ask? Well, how about December 1984? She showed up at the site of a massive toxic waste spill by Union Carboid India Limited, a facility in Bhopal, India, which killed between seven and 10,000 people in the course of three days. Upon Mother Teresa's arrival, she looked at the carnage, nodded gravely three times and said, quote, I forgive. She nodded again and said, I forgive, end quote. And she quickly waddled away like a visiting royalty. You forgive. Gee, that's nice. How about donating some money or some time? How about helping these people? You forgive? Great. Tell that to the 10,000 people suffering and dying, because I'm sure your petty actions are really going to help them cope with the death and disaster through the coming years. But I guarantee that in 1984, when she waddled her rumply old ass out there and said, I forgive, the press jumped on it and sucked her dick with so much praise and love that she couldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, how about the time when journalist Peter Jameson reported on the saint's earlier defense of Father Donald McGuire, a Catholic priest who was removed from the ministry for sexually abusing boys in the Bay Area in 1993. McGuire's misconduct, which went back to the 1960s, continued until he was arrested in 2005. For years, the Jesuits of his order had been alerted about McGuire's behavior, but refused to take the proper steps to ensure others' safety. In 2006, he was convicted for molesting two boys in Wisconsin. He was released on parole, waiting to appeal his case, just to be jailed on two occasions for violating his probation. Mother Teresa urged McGuire's superiors to reinstate him due to his work with her charities and for political reasons, as evidenced by a letter written in 1994. Quote, I understand how grave is the scandal touching the priesthood in the USA and how careful we must be to guard the purity and reputation of that priesthood. I must say, however, that I have confidence and trust in Father McGuire and wish to see his vital ministry resume as soon as possible. So they reinstated him, and he continued to fuck with and fuck kids for another 12 years. Mary Johnson, a nun that served under Mother Teresa for 20 years, said that she had a blind spot when it came to the effects of sexual abuse, and how she had expressed on numerous occasions that it was, quote, a greater sin to talk about this abuse than the actual abuse itself. Still think she's a good person? Next up is her relationship with the late Haitian tyrant Jean-Claude Bebidoc Duvalier, who inherited the office from his father, Jean-Francois Papadoc Duvalier, in 1971. Bebidoc indulged in a lavish lifestyle while the Haitian people toiled in the abyss of poverty. The United Nations accused the Duvalier's regimes of crimes against humanity. However, this did not stop Mother Teresa from participating in welcoming donations from Bebidoc and his equally wicked wife, Michelle. Mother Teresa would say in 1991, she had never seen the poor people be so familiar with their head of state as they were with Michelle, calling the experience a beautiful lesson. These poor people were so familiar with the Duvalier family that they overthrew the regime in 1986. Mother Teresa also accepted donations from shipbag financial scammer, Charles Keating, 
the savings and loan swindler of the 1980s because of his history of support. Mother Teresa stepped in on Keating's behalf by writing a letter addressed to Judge Lance Ito, yes, that Judge Lance Ito, using the Missionaries of Charity stationery. In it, she said that she didn't mix up in business, politics, or courts, but yet went on to say that I only know that he, Keating, has always been kind and generous to God's poor and always ready to help whenever there was a need. She also spoke out against contraception of any kind, believing that the natural family planning was the only way to live. And of course, she spoke out adamantly against abortion, saying, I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a direct war, a direct killing, direct murder by the mother herself, unquote. This is, of course, coming from someone that has never had to raise four kids with no money coming in and was allowed to utilize her bodily autonomy to its fullest extent. She also opposed abortion in the case of vicious rapes and sexual abuse. She expressed a hard line against divorce, unless of course it involved her rich benefactors or close friends, like Princess Diana. She said after Princess Diana and Prince Charles got divorced that it was a good thing because the love had gone from that marriage. Well, what about the marriage where the guy is beating up his wife three times a day? What about the marriage where the guy is sexually assaulting his children? Shouldn't that loss of love be taken into consideration? And all of this, all of this shitty behavior doesn't even touch on how poorly she insisted the poor and dying be treated. They were given minimal treatment, including the withholding of life-saving medications, allowed to suffer in squalor. Hers and other missionaries' refusals to install water heaters at certain camps is a testament to her caring about her persona rather than caring about the freezing water with which the patients used to have to bathe. UK investigative journalist David McIntyre went undercover to one of her hospices to volunteer for Teresa and reported neglect and even cases of abuse. His report claimed that children and the mentally ill were often tied up with ropes or clothing so that they could be fed or kept stationary. These clear violations of human rights were brushed off and never associated with the holier-than-thou persona of Mother Teresa, even though it all went through her. Mother Teresa believed that she had received a vision from God, telling her to help the poor while living amongst them. Following some very basic medical training, Mother Teresa started to look after the poorest among the poor, those who were dying, destitute on the streets in the slums of Calcutta. In 1952, her Missionaries of Charity organization started her Kaligihat home for the dying, a place where people could come to die in dignity and comfort. She wanted to make it possible for people, quote, who lived like animals to die like angels, loved and wanted, end quote. When qualified doctors visited these homes, however, they found that the medical care provided was very poor. Most of the volunteers had no medical knowledge and yet had to make medical decisions because there were no doctors available. There was no distinction made between those who were suffering from curable diseases and incurable diseases, so people who may have survived, had they been given access to fucking treatment, were left to die. Needles were reused so many times that they became blunt, and they were not sterilized between uses. No, they were cleaned in the same cold water that her victims were washed in. In 1981, when the state of care in her facilities was challenged, she said, this pisses me off so fucking bad, quote, there is something beautiful in seeing the poor accept their lot. To suffer it like Christ's passion. The world gains much from their suffering. End quote. Fuck you, you twat. This shows a very cynical use of the poor to further the ends of others. But with regard to her own medical treatment, Mother Teresa received only the best. 
And though she made public shows of declining free, high-quality medical treatment, she nevertheless had no compunctions about secretly accepting medical care from some of the best institutions in the world, including having cataract surgery and having a pacemaker installed. When the time came for her to be kissed by Jesus, she did not die in one of her own homes for the dying and was not treated with blunt needles. She was a massive hypocrite and as far from a saint as you can get. The 50 million in the Vatican Bank and in various financial institutions around the world can possibly attest to that. She was as much of a good person as I am a good Catholic. I realize that this is a very short list, but if I went on through all the horror stories of the Catholic Church, we'd be here for months. So as I disappear into the sunset of this essay, I have to really admit that Jeremy was correct. I really don't believe in live and let live when it comes to people spouting off about how their imaginary friend is better than anyone else's and how I'm going to burn for eternity because I constantly mock God and the Jesus. I guess sometimes your friends see you for what you really are. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it's not like I was actively hiding my disdain for religion. I just thought my tolerance was a little higher than it really was. Oh, well, I guess it's never too late to learn about yourself. Well, there it is. A very short version of the various vitriols and vicious variety of venom that I like to vet out to the varying victims of virtuosos pretending to be virtuously venerated. I hope you enjoyed it. So thank you to any and all of my listeners out there. A particularly large thank you to my son David for designing my logo. Great job as always, sir. And a big, big thanks to my friend Jeremy for always making me think thoughts. I realize I've been on a bit of a hiatus. I'll try to be a little more timely with my submissions. And if you did enjoy the show, I know what you can do about it. You can subscribe. You can tell your family, tell your friends, even your enemies. Hell, why should you suffer alone? Friend me on the good old Facebook at facebook.com slash buddy.rice or look for Study Buddy on the Facebook. Feel free to email me at bs.studybuddy at gmail.com and I will happily answer any questions, queries, or hate mail you may have. Also, if you feel you are a closeted atheist and need to vent or need some advice, and or encouragement about navigating these waters, I will gladly be an ear or a shoulder. I'm not licensed in anything aside from driving, and that's subjective at best, but sometimes you just need like-minded folks to talk to. And even though I took a bit of a hiatus between these last episodes, I'm still having a great time doing this. I hope you're enjoying listening to it as much as I'm enjoying putting it out there. Once again, I've been your study buddy buddy, wishing you all good times and good health. Stay safe out there. We love you all. Keep your heads up and your noses clean. And remember, kids, it's okay to smell the bullshit. Just don't get your head stuck in the bucket. Bye.